Welcome to Behind the Schemes, a conversation about protecting our planet's precious wildlife from commerce, corruption, and counterfeit cures. This is Risha Kota Larson with Behind the Schemes, and in this episode, we're talking about lions and turtles and bears and CITES with Dr. Teresa Telecki, Director of Wildlife for Humane Society International. Dr. Telecki is an expert on the United Nations Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, better known as CITES. What issues will Humane Society International be focusing on for COP16? Well, we try to follow all the issues, but I would say at the top definitely are the polar bear proposal from the United States, and then uh, we have several proposals on fish species, uh, including seven sharks and rays. Those are definitely the top for us. What's going on with the polar bear? Well, the United States has brought a proposal to list the polar bear on CITES Appendix 1, which would ban international commercial trade uh, in polar bears and their parts. And what is happening right now is that um, there are five countries that have polar bears. One of them is Canada. And Canada is the only country of the five that allow, allows people to kill the polar bears and then put the skins into trade, like you can imagine polar bear skin rugs, for example. Ew. And other, and, uh, yeah, and other bear parts as well. Um, and so what we've been able to find out through our research is that um, about 600 polar bears are killed every year in Canada, believe it or not. And oh of course, they're, they're very, you know, they're being detrimentally impacted by climate change right now. I think everybody knows the polar bear is the poster animal for climate change. And then for them to be hunted at such high levels, it's really driving the populations down. And what we are also able to find out through our research is that of the 600 bears, polar bears killed in Canada, Canada every year, over 400 of those bears' parts go into international commercial trade. So this is a trade that we want to see end, and we have supported the United States 100% all the way, you know, for from the development of the proposal to now it's been proposed, and we're working very hard to get other countries to support it. So some of the trade at the moment then in the polar bear skins, is that legal? It's 100% legal. Hmm. And then what about the other parts? Is that uh, illegal? Is what's happening to the other parts of the bear um, when the skin is sold? Well, the polar bears are hunted by uh, the First Nation people who live in Canada. Uh, the laws in Canada, you know, make it so that only the First Nation people can hunt the polar bears. So polar, they do use the polar bears, um, the meat they feed to their sled dogs. Um, and they do use polar bear parts, you know, for some traditional activities. But, you know, clearly international commercial trade is not a traditional or a, a subsistence activity for that matter. Um, and so, you know, that's a whole, it's a whole new layer of use of polar bears that it, that's occurring there in Canada now. Hmm. And it seems like once the door for a little bit of commercial trade opens, it always seems to be a gateway for... Uh, for all sorts of uh, unsustainable activities. Well, yeah, and in the case of polar bears, uh, they are on CITES Appendix 2, 
which uh, means that the exporting country is supposed to ensure that exports are not detrimental to the survival of the species. But Canada issues polar bear export permits like candy, oh. and, they, and they just don't do what is necessary to ensure that all those skins that are leaving uh, Canada, you know, are from bears that have been taken and, you know, from populations that aren't going downhill. In fact, most polar bear populations that scientists know enough information about to, to say one way or the another, most of them are declining. So, you know, you cannot have a sustainable, quote-unquote, trade of declining populations. Yeah, that just doesn't make any sense at all. Hmm. No. So the trade is per is completely legal. It's always been legal. It's never been illegal to trade in polar bear skins from Canada anyway. Um, and so what we're trying to do is actually shut that down. Um, and, you know, you mentioned illegal trade. Well, the other four countries where polar bears exist, which are Russia, the United States, Norway, and uh, Greenland, they do not allow international commercial trade in polar bear skins. So, um, so any exports from those countries cannot be for commercial purposes. It's just from Canada that it's legal. And um, one interesting thing, you know, uh, regarding illegal trade is that in Russia, polar bears are completely protected from take. Nobody can take polar bears, not even indigenous people. But what we find is that some people import the polar bear skins from Canada legally, and they offer them for sale in the markets there. And what's happening is people in Russia are poaching bears in Russia, which there it's illegal. They poach the bears, you know, skin the bears, and put the bears' skins into trade within Russia, and they claim that they are Canadian skins. So there you have an example of a legal trade from Canada acting as a cover for illegal trade from poached bears in Russia. Yeah, it seems like when the uh, laws or the um, regulations are different, whether it's country to country or state to state, it just seems that if there's any legal trade, it does seem to end up being a cover for illegal trade. That is, that is definitely true, and especially when the commodities in question um, are highly valuable. And what we've seen with polar bear hides in the last uh, three years is the value of polar bear hides has doubled. And polar bear hides are sold at auction in Canada. And, uh, you know, at the last CITES meeting in 2010, they were selling, one polar bear hide was selling for around $6,000 on average. Now they're going for more than $12,000 on average. Oh, no. Yeah, so when you see that increase in price, that indicates that market demand is increasing, okay? And it also means that, of course, more unscrupulous people are going to try and take advantage of this increase in increasing market demand and increasing prices. And that, in turn, you know, relates directly to the poaching that's going on in Russia. Hmm. Yeah, that looks like it's going to be a big... Uh a big problem having it, like I said, legal in one spot. That is just trouble for everybody. Yeah, so we hope to uh, to see that closed down um, at this CITES meeting. And what kind of uh, reaction do you expect is going to happen with that? Well, uh, you know, this propose this per same proposal was proposed at the last CITES meeting mm -hmm. um, by the United States, and unfortunately, it did not 
get the two-thirds um, majority that is required for such a proposal to pass. Um, but it did get a lot of votes. Forty-eight countries supported that proposal. So, you know, we would expect those same 48 countries to continue to support the proposal this time. But what really killed the proposal at the last CITES meeting is that the European Union voted against it. And so this time we're really trying to get them on board with the proposal um, right now. And we've been working very hard on that for the last uh, four months or so. For the, the polar bear to be, you know, having to face um, loss of habitat due to climate change. And then on top of that, 600 of them being killed every year in Ugh. Canada. It just really doesn't make sense. No, it, it really doesn't. So regarding uh, another animal that's definitely threatened by trade, uh, freshwater turtles and tortoises, there is a record number of proposals from the U.S. regarding freshwater turtles and tortoises. And is that a good sign that some of these are co-sponsored with Vietnam and China? Because those two countries are often implicated in the unsustainable consumption of turtles and tortoises. Yeah, at this uh, CITES meeting, there are 48 proposals regarding freshwater turtles and tortoises. So that is definitely a record number of proposals for, for those species uh, that any CITES meeting has ever seen. Um, which I think really reflects um, the work that has been happening within CITES over the last oh, eight or so years to really focus down on this trade in freshwater turtles and tortoises. And yes, the United States has been there leading the charge, uh, but you know there has uh, been interest from Asian countries who have been participating in the work that's been ongoing over these many years. And so I think what we're seeing at this meeting is just sort of the fruition of all of that, all of the background work that has been going on. Um, and it is fantastic to, um, first of all, for the U.S. to be um, a proponent uh, on about um, 47 of the 48 proposals, um, or a co-proponent. It is fantastic to have the U.S. leading the way on that. Um, but yes, to see China in there, in particular China, uh, which is co-sponsoring a proposal with the United States that would list 40 species of freshwater turtles and tortoises. That's phenomenal, <laughs> really phenomenal. And, um, and then there's the one proposal uh, with the U.S. and Vietnam uh, to list one species, and then Japan even has a proposal in to list a freshwater turtle and tortoise. So I think it's something that, you know, as I said, has been worked on for many years now, and we're finally seeing, you know, these proposals coming out as a result of all that work, and it is fantastic. Yeah, that's it's really good to see, and I noticed a lot of them were getting moved from Appendix 3 to Appendix 2, and I was actually quite surprised that that some of the species were even still in Appendix 3. I mean, it, it seems like so many of them are under threat. Yeah, that's definitely the case. Um, the problem has been, though, that um, not all of these species are very well studied in the wild. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about CITES is that in order for them to, for species to receive higher and higher levels of protection under CITES, there has to be trade information. And there has to be information about the biological status of the species. Um, so when that information is lacking, it makes it very hard for CITES to protect species. 
Um, so, you know, some of this data has been gathered over the last eight years. And frankly, for some of the proposals that are being discussed, there really isn't all that much data. But from the little bit of information we know, you know, we think the species should be listed on Appendix 2, obviously. Excellent. Good. <laughs> now, something that's uh, very well studied, I think, elephants, ivory trade. The ivory debate, so to speak, seems to take up a lot of time, a lot of media attention, a lot of resources everywhere. And um, Tanzania, as you know, withdrew their proposal, but it looks like it's still going to be discussed um, at the meeting. But I'm wondering, if the ivory debate was taken off the table, what kind of advancements do you think could be made in elephant conservation? Well, you know, the elephant range states, well, the African elephant range states actually have developed a plan, um, a conservation action plan, basically, for African elephants. So it's interesting that the African elephant range states are very divisive on the ivory issue, but they can come together and come up with a plan that they could work on together and going forward to protect elephants. And they've already developed the plan and they are ready to go forth and work on it, but then, you know, you have a proposal like the Tanzania one, which then brings them back, you know, into this forum where there's vast disagreement. So I think if we could just get the ivory trade issues off the table, these countries could walk hand in hand, basically, moving forward in implementing this plan that they've come up with. And I think the donor countries would get behind that and, you know, they would stop spending so much time you know, discussing and arguing about whether there should be ivory trade. Yeah, it seems like um, it does take up a lot of time. And I mean, it, it seems obvious that ivory trade is a detriment. So the fact that it continues to get discussed just doesn't really make much sense. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> if you, <laughs> I mean, you know, just to, just to play the devil's advocate yeah, here, yeah. Um, you know, um, there are countries who, well, let's take South Africa as an example, mm -hmm. um, you know, that have, for whatever reason, accumulated vast quantities of ivory and they hold it in stockpiles. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, from their perspective, because, you know, of the way that they see the world, you know, they think that that's a wasted resource, basically. They want to be able to trade in, in this big stockpile. And, you know, that's something that um, I believe uh, South Africa is the country that actually mentions, you know, sustainable use of wildlife in its constitution. Um, so, you know, it's something that's very central to the way people think in South Africa. So, mm -hmm. you know, for them to go ahead and, you know, yeah, I'm just using them as an example because they didn't put a proposal in for this meeting, but they have in the past. Um, you know, that's their motivation for putting a proposal in. And the way they discuss it, you know, what they do with their ivory in South Africa should have no relevance to what happens to elephants elsewhere. You know, and that's, that's their line. Um, you know, I don't believe it, and a lot of people I work with don't believe it, <laughs> but <laughs> that's where they're coming from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because it, it really seems like just even going back to what you were saying with the polar bear. So it's legal to, to do this in Canada, but nowhere else. So it, it 
opens the door for laundering. It seems the same way with ivory. It's legal in some places and illegal everywhere else. And with the amount of elephants being killed and the ivory thefts from the stockpiles and who knows what's going on, it's not even reported. It just really seems that having it legal in some places um, or allowing one or two countries to sell a stockpile would do nothing but cause trouble. Well, yeah, and you're also talking about stimulating the market. Yes. Every time you release, you know, something into the marketplace, more and more people buy it, and you create Mm -hmm. more customers, and that creates, excuse me, more demand, and, um, you know, then that leads to more poaching. I mean, it's just absolutely, you know, it's completely logical. Yeah, it doesn't, this, when I hear things about, oh, let's flood the market and reduce the demand, well, who ever heard of somebody selling something so that they couldn't sell anymore? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't really make a lot of sense, does no, it? it doesn't. And <laughs> well, and the other thing is, you know, that these kinds of economic arguments, mm-hmm. you know, where, uh, you know, we're going to flood the market with, uh, with uh, you know, uh, widgets, you know, they don't really hold true for wildlife. Mm-hmm. And, you know, wildlife, animals have a certain reproductive rate, and they can't produce any more offspring than what they are able to produce. And there's just no way that you can compare a wild animal that produces one offspring every four years with a factory that's producing widgets. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, So another big issue, uh, rhinos and exports and things. Um, Hundreds of rhino trophies and horns were legally exported to Vietnam from South Africa between 2006-2011 and over 100 rhinos were exported to China, um, for example a dozen at once in 2010 for a horn harvesting endeavor. Did South Africa's CITES authorities have a responsibility to sound the alarm about this activity? Well, you know, one could hope, one would have hoped so. Um, But again, since we were just talking about South Africa and the Mm -hmm. mindset of Mm -hmm. South Africa, um, you know, is very utilitarian oriented Mm -hmm. when it comes to wildlife. So they may not have actually seen a problem with these types of exports. So it's not entirely surprising Mm -hmm. that they didn't sound the alarm. Um, Mm. And the other thing about South Africa is that... um, it's, um, for, well, for one thing, it does not have CITES implementing legislation that fully implements the convention. Oh, um, okay. So that's something that they have been called on the carpet for within CITES, is not having uh, national laws to fully implement the convention, which is a requirement for all the parties to have this. Um, so they don't have this. And so one of the things that's going on in South Africa is that they they um, give the permits to the provinces and it's really the provincial officials that issue these CITES export permits and then sometime months and months later these uh, copies of these permits make their way back to the central CITES office you know long after the things have been exported Mm -hmm. so you know that's another um, problem you know, with the way that uh, South Africa implements CITES, but it also may account for why they didn't sound the alarm. 
Interesting. So, speaking of uh, CITES and the way that it's set up, there is, we've heard about a conflict of interest situation regarding one of the Animals Committee alternates and some of the challenges of implementing a conflict of interest policy within CITES. Can you talk about that situation a little bit? Yes, one of the members of the um, uh, CITES Animals Committee, which is the scientific and technical committee that deals with um, any issues related to animals. Um, one of the members who is actually, he's an alternate member, but he has been a member um, in the past, um, was simult is simultaneously um, on the committee as an alternate or a member while he was representing the shark finning industry at the same time. Ugh. Yeah. And so this came to light at the, um, let's see, it was, I think, the last Animals Committee meeting or possibly the one before it, so just very recently. And this caused a little bit of a shake-up uh, <laughs> within CITES. Um, and uh, so as a result of that, we now have a document that is going to be discussed at this upcoming CITES meeting uh, in March in Bangkok, um, whereby uh, candidates for becoming members or alternate members of committees have to disclose whether or not they have any interests like this, you know, have a conflict of interest or a potential conflict of interest. And if they disclose this, then they can, they can stay on the committee or stay there as an alternate, but they wouldn't be, able, uh, wouldn't be allowed to participate in any discussions related to the topic that they have a potential conflict of interest on. Hmm. Well, it sounds like they could still worm their way in there. Well, I think so. <laughs> but on the other hand, it is a step in the right yeah, direction. Yeah, it is. So we, you know, within CITES, one thing you have to remember about CITES is that it is a diplomatic arena. Mm -hmm. And um, so it means that things that we would want to happen much faster in a sort of one fell swoop mm -hmm. takes take years and years yeah. and years to get people to, you know, come around to thinking the same way on them. I mean, we were talking earlier about the turtles and tortoises, and as I said, that has been a long, you know, it's been going on, discussions essentially have been going on for years before you even get to the point where some proposals are submitted. You know, so there's a lot of diplomacy going on uh, to make these things happen. Hmm. One of the comments that we frequently see from the public is CITES isn't working. We see that all the time. The CITES ban isn't working. CITES isn't doing this. CITES isn't doing that. But CITES isn't an enforcement body. Can you explain the role of CITES as it relates to the responsibility of the parties? You were talking about it being a, a diplomatic arena. Can you um, give us some context with that? Yes. Yeah, so uh, we were talking earlier about the CITES implementing legislation. Mm -hmm. So the way that CITES works is it requires the countries that have signed the treaty to have national legislation that allow them to implement the treaty. And by implement, I also mean enforce. Mm -hmm. So that if something is done illegally, then it's up to the individual parties to enforce against it. So when we say CITES is not working, often what we mean is uh, certain countries are not enforcing or implementing CITES. Hmm. That's, uh, that's good to know. 
moving on to again to the work that you're doing can you tell us about the petition to list the African lion as endangered? How did that come about and what's going on with that? Well, we um, submitted that petition uh, a little over a year ago, and this is a petition under the U.S. Endangered Species Act, as you said, to list the African lion, which is a subspecies of lion, um, uh, as endangered. And uh, the petition came about because um, several of the groups that eventually submitted the petition began discussing the, the problems with international trade in lions and lion parts. Um, in particular, the importation to the United States of lion trophies, um, which, you know, number in the, in the high hundreds, you know, annually. So, we decided to start taking a look at the trade data more carefully and we found uh, that there's a lot of trade in lions going on internationally. The U.S. is the main market um, for these lions, both for trophies and for commercial trade in um, lions as well. So there's lion skin rugs, almost very similar to the polar bear situation. Um, so we went ahead and put the petition together and submitted it um, about a year, a little over a year ago. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has come out with a finding that our petition contained information indicating that the action, meaning listing the lion as endangered, uh, may be warranted, which sounds like a lot of, you know, gobbledygook language, but basically what it means is we're one step closer to getting the African lion listed as endangered under the Endangered Species Act. And if this, um, if this comes to pass, which we'll find out within the next year or so, um, then uh, lion trophies would no longer be allowed to come into the United States. Excellent. And I was going through the petition and I noticed something uh, interesting. Uh, it states from uh, 1999 to 2008, South Africa, which it also stated that most of the um, trophies were imported from South Africa, um, reported that uh, 2,862 wild source trophies were exported at a time when the country's estimated lion population was between 2,716 and 3,852. What does that suggest? Well, South Africa is a country, once again, that has a different philosophy about wildlife conservation than, mm -hmm. than I do, at least, and maybe that most of us do. Um, it's, it, again, very utilitarian, and so they have allowed people to set up businesses wherein they breed lions in captivity, um, and they allow hunters to come in and shoot them. So it's a canned hunting operation using captive bred animals. But um, the these operations do rely sometimes on wild caught lions, so they're not, they haven't, they, it's not that they have no relationship with the wild population mm -hmm. of lions, um, but they are principally bred in captivity. But the South Africa, for whatever reason, doesn't want to claim them as being bred in captivity. They're claiming them as being wild. So it's actually impossible that South Africa could be exporting that number of wild source lions. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. And I also noticed in the in the petition it uh, said that 
at least five of the lion exporting countries, and these are African lions, exporting countries are listed under category two. Can you tell us more about what that means? Yes, uh, I was referring to that earlier. I didn't call it category two, but uh, basically, as I said, all CITES parties have to have national um, implementing legislation to implement CITES within their countries. And so um, if a country has that implementing legislation, then it's in category one. So category two are countries that don't have uh, implementing legislation. Is there any sort of incentive to, to become a category one country? Yeah, the incentive is that the standing committee, which is the body within CITES that talks about things like this, um, the standing committee has is the one that basically has uh, categorized all of the countries. And any countries that are not in category one are being basically chased up by the standing committee. And they've been given deadlines by which they must have implementing legislation or they will have um, trade sanctions will be recommended against them. And there are some countries that have trade sanctions against them right now because they don't have CITES implementing legislation. And by trade sanctions, you're talking about with uh, endangered species, not full-on trade sanctions. Right. This would okay. be sanctions under the under CITES. So okay. the, the form that those usually take is the CITES secretariat uh, will send what's called a notification to the parties recommending that they not trade in CITES listed species with this particular country because the country does not have CITES implementing legislation. Has this ever happened where the notification went out and nothing happened and countries missed their deadlines? How common yes. is that? Yes, it has happened um, and I think there are no, I can't remember, sorry, but I think there are a number of countries that have um, have suspensions in place right now and have had for some time because they don't have implementing legislation. But the standing committee is actually quite lenient in this and they give countries deadlines and then if the countries miss the deadlines, then they talk about it again. They talk about what they're going to do. Why did they miss the deadline? Was it a good excuse or not a good excuse? And sometimes they extend deadlines. Mm -hmm. And um, South Africa is one of those countries, you know, that has had its deadline ex extended. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not alone in that by any means. So, you know, again, I, we have to go back to what I said before about CITES being, you know, a, an arena of diplomacy. Mm -hmm. You know, so there, uh, the um, CITES parties are loath to put trade restrictions on countries. So they try and give them as much of incentive over years and years and years um, and they really have to behave badly to get a trade sanction <laughs> put against them. <laughs> um, is there anything worse than a Category 2? Is there a Category 3? Is there anything worse than a Category 2? Yes, there are Categories 3 and 4, and um, obviously the trade sanctions are the ones, um, the ones that are most frequently get the trade sanctions are the ones in Categories, you know, 4. Going back to the petition to list the African lion as endangered, do you anticipate any resistance to that? And uh, who who do you think might not want uh, not want that to happen? Well, I think the Safari Club International, which is the lobby group for the trophy hunters, uh, I think that they will oppose it. I mean, and possibly a number of other um, trophy hunting organizations. 
Uh, I mean, let's face it, the lion is one of the so-called big five, you know, animals that trophy hunters desire. Um, and so to have them removed from or have them protected by the Endangered Species Act is going to ruin some people's hobby, you know, and I think they will, I think they will oppose it. Are there any uh, countries or anybody else do you think might oppose that, or is it mostly just some individuals who like to hunt, or what do you think? Well, I think the lobbying organizations and the individuals, the mm-hmm. trophy hunters, definitely. Countries, I wouldn't want to put words in countries' uh, mouths, if they had mouths, uh, but uh, <laughs> but I imagine um, you know there are some countries that come to mind when you talk about lion hunting. One mm-hmm. of them being Tanzania. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would not be surprised if Tanzania uh, you know opposed the proposal. Hmm. Okay. So finally, what can people do to help support the work of Humane Society International? What do we do to help you guys? Well, you can uh, visit our website, which is. Uh, simple www.hsi.org and learn more about our work. Uh, We don't work only on wildlife. Uh, We work on uh, companion animals and farm animals and animals used in research. So there's something there for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, thanks so much for talking with us today, Teresa. It was uh, really, really informative. Thank you. You're welcome. You've been listening to Lions and Turtles and Bears and CITES with Dr. Teresa Telecki, Director of Wildlife for Humane Society International. This is Risha Kotalarsun with Behind the Schemes.